We read from Holy Scripture this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, we're going to read the first 16 verses, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Our text for this morning is the first three verses. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, you are one. You are unified and therefore one. That is the truth that has been taught in the previous chapters of this book. Anyone who imagines that unity is not an essential characteristic or virtue of the church is gravely mistaken. Unity is one of the fundamental characteristics of the church. That this is the case is evident in all the confessions where they teach about the church, which teaching is essentially that captured by our own Apostles' Creed, where we confess about the church, I believe an, that is, one holy Catholic church. If you study theology, if you look at the teaching of Scripture, and you have to say, what is it that characterizes the church? How does one know a church is a church? Just like one might ask the question, what is it that characterizes a human being or a dog? What are those essential characteristics that say this is a church? The answer of the Scriptures and of all the creeds in one is always the same. It is one 
it is holy, it is Catholic, and one of the creeds adds the virtue apostolic. That is, it stands on apostolic doctrine. If one looks at the characteristics or what we call marks of the true church, they are simply delineating that truth. We know them to be the pure preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments, and Christian discipline. You understand that those marks are derived from and simply part of being one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I mention that by way of introduction because it is not uncommon at all to disparage the unity of the church. That in fact you really have no church, not a true church, unless it's fractured, unless it's divided, unless it's split off from others. In fact, a great characteristic of the church is difference and diversity, but that's not unity, and you have no church. And don't forget also that you cannot have unity if everyone is identical and the same. Unity requires differences. It is a joining together of that which is different. There are also many who misuse this passage and misquote this passage in order to create false unity. We must be aware of that. This is the passage that is the go-to passage for what we call the modern ecumenical movement, which seeks to create false unity in the church. And false unity, that is unity that is not that which is described here in the passage or in this book, is really unity of the Antichrist or anti-Christian Unity. The Antichrist also seeks to create unity, a unity of brotherhood, a unity of men. But it is entirely antithetical to the unity described here. And when the church seeks false unity and tries to establish it, it becomes an agent and tool of the Antichristian kingdom. So that is first of all what we ought to keep in mind. The importance of this exhortation exactly because it is an essential characteristic of the church. That was brought to my mind recently when I went about the Churches of Classes East as a church visitor. And among the many questions that are asked of every council by the church visitors, and many having to do with practices, how discipline is carried out, ask questions about the preaching and the sacraments and the membership. One of the most important that is asked is, is there unity, peace, and love in this congregation? And every council has to answer that question, yes, and demonstrate how and why. So this is not something new. This is not something that I'm making up given the circumstances and times in which we live or in response to the modern false ecumenicism of the world and the false church. But it is biblical and it is important. One more thing I wish to bring to your attention by way of introduction is this. We will not and cannot exhaust the subject matter of these first three verses in a sermon First of all, there's more concepts, important concepts found in these three verses than we could possibly cover. I could preach a single sermon simply on the beginning word, therefore. Therefore. That word is extremely important. Let alone the concepts of meekness and humility, of unity itself, or keeping that unity, or even the Spirit. So we should keep in mind what this text is. Number one, it is the theme of the entire next three chapters. Which three chapters begin 
a new division in the book. That word, therefore, marks a new beginning in the book and one that flows out of the previous chapters. But it's not setting forth one truth that flows out of the previous chapters disconnected from a bunch of other subjects that he's going to bring up, but rather what we must see is that what he sets forth as our one great calling, our one great calling as a church to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is described in the next three chapters. That's important. Now, the how, the manner, we will consider it in our second point, and it's very simple. How does one keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? And the answer of the passage is simply, with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And I think you all recognize that has to do with attitude and conduct, but there's more to that how. The how has to do with the calling of parents toward their children. He makes that clear. It has to do with the calling of a husband toward his wife. This is all found in chapter 5, even the calling of an employee towards his employer. It has to do with conduct and walk of life. He's going to talk about that. About working with one's hands that which is good rather than stealing Speaking rightly with one's mouth rather than lying. Putting off the old man, putting on the new man. It has to do with apostles and prophets, as he even says in the section that he read, we read. In other words, there's a lot more to this than we're going to cover here this morning. One more thing in this regard, and that is, we must understand this rightly, and it will be explained further. I will only be able to touch on it now. That what the Apostle talks about is inimical or against. It is opposed to being militant. There are many who look at this passage and say there's two poles here. That if one practices what's found in these three verses, then one never conducts controversy. One never fights. One never wields the sword of the Lord. That too is not true. We're not going to enter into it too much this morning because it's coming up. The book is in fact going to end with the exhortation to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. It involves swords and armor and all kinds of things. So don't make the mistake either of placing this passage over other passages of Scripture or imagining that the unity of the church and keeping the unity of the church is opposed to being a church militant. So those are just some of the things I ask you to keep in mind as we consider this passage from the Word of God briefly this morning under the theme, Keeping the Unity of the Spirit. We notice first the exhortation, then the manner, the how, and then the importance. I'm going to begin this morning, beloved people of God, by entering into the importance. Even though that's my third point, I want to begin somewhat with answering the question why this text is here and why it's so important. And it has to do with the fact that what is set forth here is our calling. I could reserve this till the third point and answer the question, why is this so important, simply by answering, well, it's our calling. But we're going to begin with that because that's where the apostle begins. In fact, if you look at it, so much is it emphasized that you might imagine that that's the main thought of the text. And indeed, one could preach this text from that perspective. Look at how it reads. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye... He doesn't say, keep the unity of the Spirit. But he says, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And right there 
is something very important that we have to take note of before we move on. Because it has to do with the unity that we keep. It has to do with the very unity upon which we stand. I think anyone who knows the Scripture understands that the unity of the Spirit is manifested in unity of truth, unity and understanding of the Word of God, unity of doctrine and practice. And that's what the Apostle is getting at. And so I want to impress upon you that keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace has to do with a fundamental understanding of who we are and why this is so important. And it has to do with the unity of our salvation, the unity of who we are. In other words, if one would simply isolate this passage, as is often done, one will certainly run into error. The passage begins with the word, therefore. I, therefore. The Apostle Paul puts that word in every epistle he writes at roughly the halfway point. The Apostle begins virtually every epistle he writes, first of all, with what we call a doctrinal section. That is what has been taught in the first three verses. And now with that word, therefore, the next three verses are a new section. Now we must understand this rightly. I'm not going to press this too far, and neither may you. It's a mistake to say, well, the first part is only doctrine, and the second part is only practice, that which flows out of the doctrine. Because if you look at the next three verses, which really belong real close with these first three verses, because they set forth why. Why is there is this unity of the Spirit? What does this unity of the Spirit consist of? And he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, etc., etc. That's doctrine. That's doctrine. So doctrine is going to be interwoven in the next three chapters. He's going to get to keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with regard to one's marriage and home. Husbands, love your wives. And then what follows is doctrine, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's doctrine. One can not separate them is a lesson to be learned here. One may not divide them, and certainly one may not eliminate one or the other, which is often done. I have been in the churches long enough to know that there's people that do that. Give me just the last half of the epistles of the Apostle Paul. The part's on practice. Let us hear more of the exhortations about how we are to live with our wives and our, our husbands and our, and our children and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. Tell us that. But that without doctrine, that without the foundation upon which it stands, has no power. There's nothing in it. It becomes merely commands and law. It has no power to it. There's nothing to it. There's no, this is why it must be done. Equally, it's a mistake to rip out the last half of every epistle by saying, all right, we get to this, this great anthem of praise that really ends with the word amen, and let's put a huge exclamation part there, and then we're done. There's many that would like to do that. They do that by saying, well, we hear too much about what we ought to do. There's too much about good works. There's too much about practice. We need to hear more about doctrine. And often what they mean by that, that's, just, that's all we need to hear. Let us hear about who and what we are as a church. Let us hear about how we are the elect of God. How Jesus has redeemed us from our sins. How we are sealed by the Spirit. Tell us all about this great power of God. How we're saved by grace and not by works. Tell us even that we're created unto good works, but don't tell us about the good works. In fact, if you do, you really wipe out the first passage. For the preacher to go on and say, therefore, now, this is how you must live, this is how you must conduct yourself, this is your calling, implies that salvation now is by works and not by grace. It's a threat. It's something to be suspicious of. 
It actually destroys the soul and destroys the church. Anyone with those kinds of notions is not a friend of the Apostle Paul. Is bringing false doctrine and false understanding. That word therefore means that what I am about to say is required exactly because of what I just said, what I just preached, what I just taught. Never, ever may what follows and what we're going to preach about, even this keeping the unity of the Spirit, be left from the truth that precedes it. In other words, it's very important for us to understand that this exhortation flows from and comes from, even is demanded by, the truth of who and what we are. That's what he means by calling. And it's fundamental to understand that about calling and what a calling is. One makes a grievous error when he understands that a calling is simply an exhortation to do something. That's how many see the call. Whether the call comes, repent and believe, or whether the call comes and says, keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If one simply isolates that and sees that as a bare command from God, an exhortation, doesn't matter what you call it, an admonition, then one sees no urgency to it. One can thumb his nose at it, take it for what it is. One can even dismiss it. You know, after all, we can't keep it perfectly. But one may do that. Because if one does that, one is eliminated in the truth that comes before it. Let me explain. Which of you parents would allow your children to think this way? Well, I'm a child of my parents. There's no dispute about that. I belong to this home. That's my mom and that's my dad. And therefore, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to live a certain way. I don't have to treat my parents a certain way. I don't have to conduct myself in this home a certain way. I could pretty much do whatever I want. I can listen to them. I can choose not to listen to them. You would sit that child down and say, child, we need to talk. It's the very fact that you are my child. It's the very fact that you belong to this home. It's the very fact that you are where you are that means, therefore, you will do this or that. And such can never be then a condition to being this or that. That's the charge, of course. If you bring an exhortation, if you tell the people how to live, then you're making that a condition to what they are. And it's exactly the opposite. What the Apostle is setting forth is, this is who you are. This is who you confess to be, at least. But this is who you are as a church. This is what the true church is. This is what the real church is. It is the body of Christ. It is the bride of Christ. It is the temple of the living God. And this is how it came into being. Not by your will, but the will of God. And the will of God that came out of His everlasting love. And in that everlasting love, because those whom He gave to Christ were sinners, He sent Christ to redeem them, and He redeemed them by His blood. And then because they were redeemed by His blood, they are part of Him, buried with Him, raised with Him. And therefore, that salvation is worked out. And so they must be sealed by the Spirit until the day of perfection, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then think of all the other truths that we have covered thus far, where especially he sets forth in chapter 2 the great examples of the power of God by which he saved us, the power of his grace. He puts some meat on the truth. What does it mean that we're saved by grace? Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's that you were formerly Gentiles and lived just like them, but are no more. You've been made new creatures. You've been regenerated. Is that the end of the story? No, he goes on. Therefore, I pray. I pray that you may increase in knowledge. You increase in power. You increase in strength. And that has to do with the growth, the living growth of the body and the temple as a living organism. And what does he say, amen? He means, well, that's it. Let's all go home. No. Now, therefore, 
You have a calling. I want you to just notice one thing. When he says that this is the exhortation, you walk. Notice walk. This has to do with walk. That I'll tell you right then and there that he's not exhausting what it means to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace here in this three verses because those things which delineate how are mainly attitudes. Humility and meekness are attitudes, not walk. So he says right here, this has to do with walk, how one lives, how one conducts himself. Worthy of vocation. That's really calling. Worthy of the calling wherewith ye are called. The same word is used there twice. It tells us something about calling, by the way. Often in our churches, people think there's only two people that have calling, two offices that have calling. That's the minister and perhaps teachers. They have a calling. The rest of us have no calling. We can do pretty much whatever we want. No, that's wrong. We all have a calling. I have a calling, you have a calling, and we have callings all over the place. We have a calling as office bearers. We have a calling as the office of all believers. We have a calling as fathers. We have a calling as mothers. We have a calling as members of the church. And that is what he's pointing out here. This calling comes to the members of the church. And it's a calling exactly because they are members of the church. And he even calls it a vocation. The translators are right to take that word call and say, this is a vocation. You need to think of it that way. Just like you would think of a vocation of being a farmer or being a doctor or being a lawyer or being a minister, this is your vocation. Now, about that calling, that vocation. It is to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's the main, main phrase. And we need to talk about that. First of all, I want you to notice that the calling is to keep. That word keep is very, very important. It is very important, first of all, for what it is not. It does not say make. Make the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's how it's often read. That's how it's often observed. That's often what people are doing when they say they're keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. They're in their mind, they're making peace. Now, making peace is a biblical concept. Making unity is really not. In fact, to understand that one is making unity is really to deny that it's the unity of the Spirit. The whole point of calling this the unity of the Spirit is to point out that it's a unity by the Spirit. It's the unity that the Spirit makes. It's His unity. And therefore, one cannot make it. One keeps it. Much like Adam and Eve, when God came to them after they were made and said, keep the garden. They didn't make the garden. God made the garden. God created the garden. God put all the things in the garden that were supposed to be there. Their job was to keep it. And if one looks at that word in Scripture, one will recognize that the word keep has the idea not simply to tend and to nurture. That's part of it. If I would tell a mother and father that you must keep your home, part of keeping your home would be maintaining it. And it would be have with it the idea of nurturing it, fostering it, making sure that as mother and father, as much as possible, you're promoting unity. You're setting that forth in your home as something to strive for, something important, something that's necessary to the well-being and interest of the family. You don't conduct yourself with this attitude, well, I really don't care how you live, and if you're fighting and divisive and all that, doesn't really matter. It has to do with nurturing and fostering, but especially behind that deal is to do that in light of a threat. To keep means to guard, to protect When God came to Adam and Eve and said, keep the garden, God did that because the devil was already loose. He was already a threat to the peace and unity found there in the garden, to the perfection of Adam and Eve, and God was reminding them of that. So also, when the calling comes, 
and it's urged upon us and set forth as the one great, great calling of the members. Its meaning is that there's a great, great threat. I want to emphasize that. First of all, take note, this is the one great calling of a member of the church. Think of all the wonderful truths found in the rest of this book. And you know the book. You know what's found there. He speaks on all kinds of subjects and topics, and and very wonderful ones. He has much to say about keeping the truth, about walking according to the truth, living a sanctified life, all these things. But when it comes to summarize them all, he takes it all and he puts it under a single theme. Keep the unity of the peace. Keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's like the memes they have out there, right? you got one job to do. There's one job you got. You may look at your calling here in the church, here in Trinity, here in the Protestant Reformed churches, in the broader church world, as one calling. One, one thing. Lay everything else aside, not that it's unimportant, but at least put it under this umbrella, that whatever you do is governed by this one. You have an interest in the truth and defend the truth? Fine. Great. That's wonderful. But it must be done in an endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You want to counsel someone on maintaining their marriage and give them the counsel of Ephesians 5, then it must be done so under the umbrella that you're keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and that it's not just a matter of the home but the church. You see how it changes everything? But now if that's true, if that's your one great calling, it means that's the one great threat. I pray to God that you all understand that, and I wish to God that more people understood this. The devil does not introduce false doctrine for false doctrine's sake. He he does not introduce division and chaos into your homes. He does not promote that you be selfish pigs with regard to your marriage and towards your family and behave as boors in the church for its own sake. Remember, when the apostle sets this forth as your one main calling, he's saying this is the one great threat in the church. The one great threat is not false doctrine as such. The one great threat is not an abusive husband or an unsubmissive wife or rebellious children as such. The one great threat is not that you think that you can go through life without armor and the sword of the Lord and a shield and all that, but it's division. That's what the devil does. If there's one thing the devil could wish and want, it's to divide the church, because to divide the church is to destroy it. You all know that. If you're going to battle and you want to destroy an army, a mighty army, Or if you wanted to destroy a building that's fitly framed together. Or you wanted to kill somebody, a body. If you wanted to destroy the body, how would you do it? You rend it asunder. You cut the head off from the body. You cut an arm off from the body. You cut a leg off from the thighs. You cut stones out of the wall. You remove the walls from the roof. You knock a wall off the foundation. That's what you do. We need to understand that. The calling, the one great calling is to keep it because that's such a threat. So, to summarize, remember, when the calling comes to us, it's not telling us to make unity, but keep it. To keep what's already there. And then, when we keep it, we have to understand how important it is. Much more important than we realize. It's the one great threat against the church. Now, before we move on, What helps us see all those things is that this is a unity of the Spirit. It's not your unity. It's not my unity. It's not Protestant Reform unity. It's not Trinity's unity. It's unity of the Spirit. That is, it is a unity that has been formed and fashioned and also that is preserved by the Spirit. We may not understand even when it comes to keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace that this is now our work and our labor and our contribution to keeping everything together. 
I'm going to make that clear in just a little bit. But the point is that this is the Spirit's work. Exactly because the Spirit unites us to Christ. What is it that unites you to Christ? You say, faith. My response is, well, what of faith? Or through what? What actually is the thing that unites? And the answer is the Spirit. He's made that so clear. God unites us to Christ by joining us to Him by His Spirit. And by that Spirit, we are all joined to Him. doesn't matter if we're a toe or a finger or an ear. One way or another, we're all joined to Christ. Whether as individual parts of the building or individual parts of the body. But now, exactly because of that, that one Spirit, we are all united together. Jew and Greek. Male and female. Rich and poor. Doesn't matter. So when one considers the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, the very first thing one has to understand is the kind of unity it is. It's not just a unity of doctrine. That's one manifestation of it. Certainly if there's unity of the Spirit, there will be a unity of thought. There will be a unity of speech. There will be a unity of confession. There will be a unity of behavior. Make no mistake. But it may never be isolated to one thing or another. It's an entire unity. Anything that has to do with the Spirit. And now, get into the how. This helps explain now the how. When the Apostle then says, how, how is this to be done? Notice, it's with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in peace. Now, there's a lot of things surprising about that. When I look at it, I, I, I'm actually quite surprised by it. If you would ask me or ask yourself how you keep unity, these are the last ways that we would pick. And there it goes to show you how depraved we are, how easily we ally ourselves to the devil. You see, there's the devil's unity. Ask the devil how you unify, and he'll tell you. You do it by coercion. You do it by manipulation. You do it by intimidation. You do it by insisting you're right and making everyone else fall in line with what you believe. You, buy, you do it by giving people what they want. Those are all the tactics that he uses. But now, even if you eliminate those, you say, now, how would we say to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? We would probably have all kinds of answers about that. Let's make sure we're all doing the same thing. Let's make sure we all have worship services the exact same way. Let's make sure that all of us confess the exact same thing without any derivation whatsoever. Let's all sing out of the same songbook. Let's all lockstep and march together. Let's make sure we eliminate sin here and there and everywhere. We would have all kinds of ways to do this. Some would have something to them because they are manifestations of it. But the Apostle says, no, we're going to start with these. Meekness, lowliness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. And he does it, for one, exactly because that's not where we would begin. You know, even Jesus pointed it out that oftentimes when you want there to be unity or you want to have people come together, these things seem to be weaknesses. Why, if you're meek, people run right over top of you. If you have lowliness of mind, then you never speak your mind. Those are bad. Those don't get you anywhere. You gotta pound the pulpit. You gotta yell. You gotta scream. You gotta insist on your will. No. No. Now why is that? Because it's unity of the Spirit. That's the answer. This is how the Spirit unifies. If you want one answer why these are the reasons or the how of keeping the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, the answer is this is how the Spirit unified you. Go back and read the Apostle in the first three and listen to him. Look at his manner. Look at his manner of speech. Look in your own experience how God even talks to you. How does God deal with you? How did God save you? And then even more importantly, who is this Christ to whom you are joined by His Spirit? And the answer is very simple. 
He was lowly and meek and long-suffering and forbearing in love. And if you don't understand that about Christ, you will understand none of this. Then you become a brawler. Then you become a yeller and a screamer. All kinds of things. That's what Jesus said. Follow me. I am meek and lowly of heart. The Bible says about him he was meek and came on a foal, the colt of an ass. I could go on and on. What did it take, as the Apostle is going to say in just a few verses, for him to come down from heaven to descend to the lower parts of the earth? And don't minimize this. Don't minimize this. I could point out a lot of different ways that this is minimized in our own mind. But I'll just point out some things about what the Bible says. When you look at the fruits of the Spirit, what are they? And you will find these same virtues. These are the fruits of the Spirit. And then when you look at how to do things, how to conduct yourselves, it's amazing. These same virtues show up. When the apostle comes to the church and he, and he has something to say to them about dwelling or dealing with sin, whether it be the individual sinner, even the stubborn sinner in the church, or dealing with your own sin, he emphasizes that it be done with meekness and lowliness and long-suffering and patience. When it comes time to identify the virtues and the characteristics of a child of God, these are the ones that are always emphasized. In fact, it's even amazing if you want to um, see the connection and the tight connection. The apostle even invokes these same things when you're dealing with an enemy. And, and by enemy, he means they're one who's teaching false doctrine. Someone who is teaching something that's inimical to the Word of God. It's, it's not correct. It's an error. Now, what does the apostle say? about that. And don't forget, he's talking there about wielding the sword of the Lord. He, that's how you deal with false doctrine. You have to wield the sword, the Word of God, and he's going to talk about this later on. But how do you do that? Well, the apostle says, in meekness, one of the characteristics of a servant of the Lord is he must not strive, but be gentle. The word gentle there is the word meekness. But be gentle unto all men apt to teach, patient in teaching, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Unless you think that's just an opposition of someone personal, guess again. This is doctrinal opposition even. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So even if you're dealing with someone who doesn't acknowledge the truth, who opposes the truth, who opposes you, deal with them in meekness. Why? That they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who has taken them captive by his will. Meekness, lowliness of mind, etc. Though it's also brought out in the passage is that these belong to the bond of peace. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you ask why in meekness, why in humility, why with a long-suffering spirit and patience and all these things, and the answer is they belong to peace, which also belongs to love. Notice, forbearing one another in love. And this is one of those passages where the in love could be put with the next statement so that he says, in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's a connection there between love and peace. In Scripture, they're both called bonds. The idea is that the bond is love. Love for Christ, by His Spirit, and thus love for all the members of the church who are united to you by that Spirit. And when you do that, the result is peace. There's peace. Unity and peace go together. I don't have time this morning to get into what meekness and long-suffering and all those are, but those are all attitudes. And they're all the exact opposite of pride. They have to do with gentleness, 
kindness, and especially humility. And not just humility before the Word. There's a lot of people who are brawlers, who are divisive by their brawling, partly because they have no interest in the salvation of others or in turning them from their ways. They think this is the way to do it. But forget, again, that these are virtues of the Holy Spirit. This is how He works, how He labors, and how He recovers even the lost sinner or the erring brother. This is the Spirit, beloved, that is behind our church order. If you ask how to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, one way is follow church order. It sets forth how that's done with regard to the institute and the organism. There's even this. I want to point this out. This creedal statement. So important is this. It becomes a part of our creeds and notably the creeds that are dealing with error. And notice how it flows out of a humility with regard to God. Since God saved us, God showed us grace. Since God was meek toward us and long-suffering and patience and forbearing and love and all these things and thus made peace, thus unified us together, therefore. This is, about, this is the Canons Head 3-4, Article 15. God is under no obligation to confer this grace upon any. It's grace. He didn't have to confer it to any. For how can he be indebted to man who had no previous gifts to bestow as a foundation for such recompense? Nay, who has nothing of his own sin but, nothing of his own but sin and falsehood. Therefore, he who becomes the subject of this grace owes eternal gratitude to God and gives him thanks forever. We would say, Amen. Of course. We're saved by grace, therefore we owe eternal gratitude to God. Amen. Nope. Goes on. Whoever is not made partaker thereof is either together altogether regardless of these spiritual gifts and satisfied with his own condition, smug, self righteous, or is in no apprehension of danger and vainly boasts the possession of that which he has not. He claims to be that which he is not. And he's satisfied with that. But now the article deals with the attitude toward others. Notice. This is keeping the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace according to the confessions. With respect to those who make an external profession of faith, they profess the same faith that you do. They profess their love for Jesus Christ. They confess that they are justified by faith alone. They confess that Jesus is their Savior, their only Savior, and live regular lives. We are bound, after the example of the Apostle, to judge and speak of them in the most favorable manner. That's how you speak about them. Why? Ephesians 4, chapter, verses 1 and 3. Oh, as to others who have not yet been called unbelievers, wicked, it is our duty to pray for them to God who calls the things that are not as if they are. And we are in no wise, that means never, ever, to conduct ourselves toward them. That's the ungodly now. With haughtiness as if we made ourselves to defer. That's what haughtiness always shows. That's the haughtiness of the Pharisee who sat in the temple and said, I thank thee, Lord, I'm not like others. I thank thee that I'm not like that publican over there. I thank thee that I'm not like those people in that denomination or that congregation over there. I thank thee, Lord, that I don't believe those things. That's haughtiness. That's pride that belies the, the, the idea that you made yourself to defer. Maybe because you split away from that church. Or maybe because you made yourself see what you see or don't see. What's the importance of all this? Well, before you even talk about the what, notice that it is important. I therefore, this is the one point I want to make after all this doctrine, and I make it as the prisoner of the Lord. Paul here is connecting it to being a prisoner because he's saying this is what it means to be a prisoner of the Lord. You don't get to conduct controversy. and You don't get to deal with your neighbor in the church just the way that you want. And I beseech you. I admonish you. I say this in no uncertain terms as loudly as I can say it. I'm going to repeat that it's your calling. It's your vocation. This is what you were called to do. 
And then not only just keep the unity of the Spirit, but endeavor. That is, work hard, labor at it. Not only because these are serious threats, but when it comes, when there is division, when there is chaos, there will be personal attacks against you. There will be times you want to stand up and say, I'm going to defend myself. I was personally hurt and harmed here. I'm going to do what's best in my own eyes. I'm going to say this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to call you all kinds of names. That's not endeavoring. Endeavoring is sweating, laboring, doing that which is not according to your neighbor, but every, against your nature, but everything against your nature. One is not naturally lowly. One is not naturally meek. These are virtues of the Spirit. It requires laboring in the Spirit. It requires prayer. It requires godliness. It requires submitting yourselves most of all to God. I'm going to give you one reason why. Because it's God's unity. It's unity of the Spirit. That means it's God's unity. You didn't make it. You don't get to determine who's in it and who's out of it. It's God's unity. God is the one who has brought these members together in the body. God has made them what they are. God has saved them. How dare you? How dare you divide that and separate that? And even if you're going to say you don't belong, you don't get to do that as an individual. You don't get to determine that. It's even one reason God appoints elders, as it will brought out, because those kind of decisions are weighty decisions. It's elders who excommunicate on the church, excommunicates through them. You don't have the right to say you belong and you don't. Why? It's God's unity. You know what that means, right? You see, talk about Christ is cheap. I believe in Christ. I love Christ. I'm laboring on Christ. I'm preaching Christ. I'm defending Christ and all these things. And God says, okay, if that's true, then you will keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because that's what my Christ has wrought. That's what Christ has done. That's what He works through the Spirit. And so, beloved, that's the exhortation. Endeavor. Work. Strain. Submit yourself in humility and meekness and kindness and gentleness as much as you are able by the Spirit of Christ to keep the unity of that Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, forgive our sins, our sins that cause division and rancor, by pride and malice and evil speaking, by considering ourselves better than others, and all the various ways and excuses that we give to do that. We pray, O Lord, to Thee, for it is Thy unity, and it is only by Thy strength that we can keep anything. O Lord, forgive our sins then also against the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And give us peace. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.